thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure and an honour to be here. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to present to you a very early draft of a paper based on a chapter that I'm writing for my PhD. Um, it's still very early stages. It's, there's quite a big gap I have to bridge yet between the paper that I had thought that I had written and the paper that I've actually written. So I'm happy to have any comments or suggestions. Um, so let me give a little background to the project as a whole, as briefly as I can. Um, so I'm starting from the premise that... Um, so I'm looking at the US discourses, official discourses on narratives about cybersecurity. And I'm starting from the premise that cyberspace is, um, and I quote, an image subject to complex shaping. It's an issue of controversy and contention among states and non-state actors, not the expression of a natural essence. So it's made up and is still in the process of being made up by the ways that people talk about it and enact it, um, both discursively and materially. Now, I'm researching the emergent discourse of cybersecurity in the US. The problem is, or my research problem, if you like, is that there is no settled definition of what cybersecurity is, what counts as legitimate knowledge, or who the legitimate actors are or should be. So, official narratives about cybersecurity in the US emphasise its exceptionality, um, or how it challenges or reconfigures pre-existing boundaries or categories, such as um, the boundaries between war and espionage, domestic and foreign, and so on. So my thesis aims to challenge this construction of cybersecurity um, as exceptional by demonstrating the mundane, the, the, the bureaucratic and internal contestation that lies at the heart of the emergent discourse. Um, I use the heuristic of boundary work from the, uh, I think it's technically the sociology of scientific knowledge literature, um, as a way to frame my analysis, um, to trace the ways that different actors are working at having or having to work at demarcating the boundaries in question, or to demarcate their own legitimacy as speakers, or the legitimacy of ongoing practices and discourses in cybersecurity. So, let me tell you a story about vulnerability disclosure to set the scene. So, in the world of cybersecurity, vulnerabilities are unintended flaws found in software programs or operating systems or hardware like chips and processors in um, devices that any of us use on a daily basis. Vulnerabilities can be the result of um, programming errors or improper computer or security configurations. Um, but if left unaddressed, vulnerabilities create security holes that hackers could, if they were so minded, um, discover and exploit to gain access or manipulate the systems the vulnerabilities are part of. Um, and again, this is in systems many, many of us use on a daily basis in theory. Vulnerabilities also form the foundation of all kinds of operations that state actors conduct in and through cyberspace. Over the last 20 years, agencies such as, um, particularly in the US, such as the NSA, the military and the CIA, uh, amongst many others, have been developing the kinds of espionage and intelligence operations through cyberspace that we can only infer must require knowledge of vulnerabilities in both adversarial and domestic systems. Um, developing these espionage capabilities in itself, or is not in itself, illegal. They're viewed as an extension of the existing intelligence toolbox. Um, government agencies, or rather in terms of the secrecy of these operations and how they fit existing ideas or ideals of government secrecy, 
Government agencies can compartmentalise information, um, such as by classifying details of vulnerabilities they exploit. The difference is that they cannot so easily physically segregate. These covert operations are in the same cyberspace domain that domestic um, civilians and organisations also use. Um, these operations carry risks, such as collateral damage or unintended consequences. They're still emerging, they're still being figured out by state actors, and it's a complex ecosystem. This was borne out last year in the WannaCry ransomware of May 2017, for example. Now, WannaCry gained access to the hard drives of computers operating Microsoft Windows because of a vulnerability or a flaw in the coding, which was named Eternal Blue because of its tendency to inflict the blue screen of death on um, typical of computers in distress. Now, Eternal Blue was a, a tool developed and used by the NSA, but one that was leaked and then subsequently repurposed for WannaCry. However, government agencies have barely acknowledged and never discussed in these capabilities in detail. Cyberspace operations have perpetually been shrouded in secrecy, even while media and other publicly available sources have inferred their existence. Now, while these capabilities may be developed in top secret, um, because of the civilian uses of cyberspace, their secrecy is not something that government actors may always be able to guarantee a monopoly over. Um, not only might these capabilities leak, civilian researchers and companies spend a lot of time and money separately researching these same vulnerabilities in the same systems. So, going a little bit further on from the presentations earlier, perhaps, um, the vulnerabilities are thus a diffused kind of secrecy, the vulnerabilities themselves. These are hidden or unknown flaws yet to be discovered, a form of non-knowledge, maybe. It's not just a case of a government actor making or producing or designating a secret, but many different actors, including state actors, competing with each other to find these secrets and claim them for their own. This is not necessarily a discrete body of knowledge, for example. So the imperatives of state secrecy are nothing new, and I'm not arguing for the exceptionality here. In fact, I'm trying to argue against it as exceptionality. But I think there are idiosyncrasies to the debates in the case of cybersecurity. Secrecy as a topic has yet to be addressed in the critical security literatures on cybersecurity, so I'm hoping I'm doing something different here. Um, the, the idiosyncrasy lies in the tensions between the widespread civilian uses of cyberspace on the one hand, and the imperatives of state secrecy and their desire to use cyberspace strategically on the other. According to the official logic of government actors, the government faces two competing interests. Retain the knowledge of the vulnerability for the purposes of intelligence gathering and strategic operational gains, or make it known to the software vendor for patching. These are represented as mutually exclusive positions. In other words, um, between secrecy on one hand and disclosure on the other. Oops. So, Valuable insights have already been made in the critical literature on secrecy as a government strategy, or which have demonstrated the ways that secrecy materialises in manners that might not always be intentional by states. However, it tends to be presented in the critical literature as a singular rationale by a unitary actor. Um, you will all, I'm sure, be quite familiar with this stuff. I don't want to rehash it, but um, Horn, for example, uh, Ava Horn talks about the secret of the state, um, or Bratich talks about revelation as an intentional strategy of perception management, or Jodie Dean in her 2004 article about 9-11 um, presents um, it in terms of the US discourse. 
Now, there are many good analytical reasons for doing this for other empirical cases, because this is how representations are made in the public about state secrecy. For example, because the public reports refer to the US state. But this is less helpful, or this is a less helpful view for understanding the emergent discourses of cybersecurity, I think, which are articulated by so many different actors and organizations. In the paper, um, I tell a chronological narrative centered around US government agencies' negotiations over how much they should disclose, and to whom, about the vulnerabilities they utilize in ubiquitous software and hardware systems. I do this to show how actors have continuously had to work to justify and demarcate the boundaries between secrecy and disclosure, that they're not self-evident, they take work. It is not necessarily the coherent strategy of a unitary actor, and it can also emerge at the point of negotiations and contestations. So, over the last 20 years, one of the recurring themes in popular and policy reportage has been the extent to which the government has kept its um, CNA capabilities, or computer network attack capabilities, secret um, by observing years of studied silence. Um, now, specifically, CNA refers to um, operations designed to deny, degrade, or disrupt systems. Those are different or one step further than typical intelligence or espionage um, operations. Um, but despite this dominant narrative in the press and academic circles, um, for more than seven years, um, between 2002 and 2009, for example, uh, STRATCOM, or Strategic Command, um, was openly stating on various of their websites which of their departments had operational responsibility for computer network operations. Um, in fact, they published their involvement on their public-facing websites. Now, this information would have been available to anyone who had access to their website or a mind to look. For the military branches of the government who were arguing for their political and budgetary stake in this um, emerging domain of war fighting, there was no reason to keep it secret. In fact, for military deterrence strategies to be convincing, they needed their capabilities to be publicly acknowledged in order to be effective, to deter attacks by their, lo uh, to de to by their logic. Um, for example, by 2010, cyberspace had been declared by the US as a separate domain of warfighting alongside sea, land, air, and space. However, um, uh, the executive branch had a different notion of the role of secrecy around their capabilities and the use of vulnerabilities. By 2008, around the time that this stuff was being taken down by the Eastbacom websites, um, the executive was devising a policy in top secret because of a recognition of all the different organizations and agencies involved in using vulnerabilities in cyber operations. This was called the vulnerability equity process, which I analyze in more detail in my paper. The VEP, so-called, was envisioned as a way of managing all of the different organizations' competing intelligence, military, and defensive interests, most of which were competing or uh, mutually exclusive. So, in 2013, some years after the previous slide, I guess, um, after years of relative silence on the government's exploitation of vulnerabilities in widely used systems, and in response to the Snowden revelations in particular, the White House handpicked a special review group called the President's Review Group on Intelligence and Communications Technologies. That's a mouthful. They published a report, which was then colloquially named the NSA Report. Um, and it was authored by five ex-members of the intelligence community, such as the CIA, and members of the national, or ex-members of the National Security Council. Um, 
And this report kind of pulls the plug, or pulls the rug out from under the administration's official position. In this 300-page report was a series of recommendations, which notably included the tacit acknowledgement of the use of exploits in government operations, hence the slide. While one arm of government was publishing their glossary definitions of the term computer network attack and putting it on their websites, and the executive branch was developing classified initiatives and policies, other officials within the government were thus publicly criticising the secrecy surrounding the government's use of zero-day vulnerabilities as part of the offensive operations. As far as the report committee was concerned, it was in the national interest to eliminate software vulnerabilities. Until this point, uh, any official reference to the government's use of vulnerabilities was deemed to be a matter of national security classification, kept top secret. But despite the re report's recommendation, and there were 40 of them, Obama neither acknowledged nor addressed this recommendation, seemingly unwilling to change or negotiate the executive's position. Um, so then a little later, uh, in January 2014, around the time that the executive was responding to the NSA report, the executive had been further developing the top secret VEP, the vulnerability equity process, though again, it was still being kept totally classified. They were reiterating and re evolving it, but it was still top secret. But then external events later in 2014 forced the administration to redraw the boundaries around what was secret and what was disclosed about the VEP. In response to news stories and unsanctioned leaks, the White House released details of the VEP process through a series of blog posts by the cybersecurity coordinator, Rob Joyce. Now, I analysed these posts and the unredacted language, the, the language that's available to me, of the 2014 VEP in the paper in more detail. Um, but throughout the releases, it's possible to trace the ways that actors were working to demarcate the ways that vulnerability disclosure and cyberspace operations by extension fitted into the existing schema of secrecy and national security. Government actors paint the institutionalised use of vulnerabilities as a necessary and inevitable requirement in their battles against foreign adversaries, with the logic of, if we don't research these, someone else will. They do this by invoking familiar concepts and ideas for both themselves and their audiences. They speak in terms of unilateral disarmament, for example, as in they don't want to get rid of these capabilities because that would be unilaterally disarming. Um, and they invoke the logic of national security and liberal ideals of transparency. So this is all very often couched in terms of transparency. So they're telling people what they need to know, but no more. So 2014 was thus the year the executive branch finally acknowledged what many observers had already surmised, that the discovery and exploitation of vulnerabilities in software and hardware formed the basis of US offensive computer network operations. However, they did not speak of the contents or the details of these capabilities, only acknowledging in the broadest terms that they utilised vulnerabilities for their missions. Um, by 2015, the government had only released details of the process and the heavily redacted VEP document because of scandals and lawsuits. It was reactive, in a sense. Um, and in early 2015, the NSA released an infographic to the effect that historically it disclosed 91% of vulnerabilities discovered in products, while the remaining 9% were either fixed by vendors, i.e. the people that made the products, um, before we notified them, or not disclosed for national security <coughs> reasons. Um, the glossy format of the infographic manages to make a spectacle out of the secrecy, as Gallison would say, um, without addressing any of the contents or the justifications for the secrecy. 
again, it re represents what Birchall, Claire Birchall, would identify as, the, as a procedural solution to the problem. So although government actors are making these disclosures about the VEP, VEP procedures in the name and language of transparency, they still do not address the particularities of, for example, government funding in the vulnerabilities market. The United States government, various branches, are the biggest researchers of vulnerabilities as well as the biggest funders. However, in working to keep the internal dynamics of the vulnerability market invisible, the official disclosures of the VEP both produce and enforce the necessity for secrecy. The risks to the state are posed by external adversaries, not by the vulnerability research or the government funding of that grey market. By focusing on secrecy in procedural terms in this way, revelation is thus instrumental to maintaining and representing secrecy. It is a way of reframing, reframing or redirecting any wider discussion and of reinforcing existing logics and justifications for government secrecy. Um, the first part up there could actually say disclosure is a form of concealment. So presenting so much information that it's not really being transparent at all or presenting it as a way to foreclose other kinds of conversation, to foreclose other kinds of discussion. Throughout the series of disclosures about the VEP and vulnerability use between 2014 to 2018, it has been a messy and inconsistent history, the result of government actors negotiating the internal tensions and contradictions between their broader political policies and aims on the one hand for the openness and security of cyberspace. Um, they particularly like talking about how cyberspace is um, an important economic driver and you know, that it needs to be open and interoperable. But then on the other hand, that works in tension or seems to contradict the operational practices they actually do on the, on, on the whole. So, in conclusion then, my research so far is suggesting to me that thinking about secrecy or US cybersecurity discourses more generally is the actions of a unitary state actor. It's not very helpful. Instead, I argue for the importance of seeing government secrecy as something that evolves and that is time and context specific, much as Gallison and Wellerstein highlight in the case of nuclear secrecy, as I shown on an earlier slide. And also that much like Birchall and Fenster's critiques, secrecy and disclosure are a, a spectrum. It's never or rarely that simple a, a binary. This can help us understand the iterative and situated processes in its formulation, and maybe identify points of fragmentation as different branches of government contest the boundaries between secret and disclosed. So why is this important? Um, Viewing secrecy in terms of a single unitary actor can perhaps feel like an insurmountable research problem, methodologically or empirically, and maybe even conceptually too. But I suggest that secrecy manifests at points of contention and contestation, not simply competing missions or interests, but also bureaucratic, political, budgetary, and inter-service rivalry. I haven't managed to draw that out quite enough in my paper, but I, it's a work in progress. Um, so it's not a simple, or it's not about a simple binary relationship between secret and disclosed, but of gradations, a spectrum. And as researchers, we can use these points of contestation, or perhaps speaking to William's point earlier, the sort of points of contestation or controversies, um, as ways of interrogating the sort of deterministic accounts of government secrecy and national security logics to show how national security secrecy may be contested internally. It's not always self-evident and the, the, the actions of a rational actor. Thank you very much.